It's the Growing for Market podcast. Being a manager kind of gave me the sense of what it would be like to own my own farm and have a certain level of responsibility and autonomy and decision-making without having the emotional tie-ins to this is my farm, this is my baby, as well as all the financial risk and investment that is put in when you start the farm. And there's a lot of gut check moments throughout my time there where it's just like when things, like you said, you know, when it's not going perfect, those questions arise of like, oh, do I really want to be doing this? Is this something I can see myself doing for decades? It's not just a you know phase of my life that I'm interested in this. And each time bounced back from that and was reaffirmed in, in this path. And that just gave me the internal confidence when I, when we started this farm to know like, yeah, we're, we're in it to do this. And there's a lot of benefit in my experience of having those reality checks ahead of all that investment. Hello, and welcome to the Growing for Market podcast, where we talk about growing, marketing, and the business of growing vegetables and flowers for local markets like farmers markets, CSAs, farm stands, and local wholesaling. I'm Andrew Mefford, your host and the editor of Growing for Market magazine. For 32 years, the only magazine devoted solely to flower and vegetable market farmers. If you're enjoying the podcast, just wait till you see the magazine. Go to growingformarket.com for more. Also, if you could give us a follow and a rating, it really helps other like-minded people find the podcast. And now let's take a minute to hear from our sponsors. It's with their generous support that we can bring you the podcast for free. I am so excited to welcome Bootstrap Farmer as a sponsor of the podcast. I've known them for a dozen years, and if anyone tells you nothing is made in the USA anymore, well, they're headquartered and warehoused in Paris, Texas. They make their own all-metal, all-inclusive greenhouse frames of steel made in the USA and fabricated in Texas, and their heavy-duty, reusable propagation and microgreens trays are Midwest-made. With a complete range of supplies, they have just about everything for propagation and growing, including heat mats, ground cover, frost blankets, silage tarps, irrigation, and trellising. Want to color code your seed starting flats? They've got heavy-duty trays that will last for years in a full range of colors, great for keeping farm seedlings separate from retail or just for fun. And they have an experienced team of growers to support everything they sell. If you've heard of the NRCS High Tunnel Initiative providing grants for hoop houses, but have been put off by the paperwork, Bootstrap Farmer has a guide that will walk you through the application process so you can get your hoop house funded this winter. For all that and more, check out Bootstrap Farmer at bootstrapfarmer.com. Every fall on our farm, we order a couple sling bags of Fort V potting soil from Vermont Compost. Over the years, we've tried a lot of the compost and potting soil options out there, from making our own to buying off the shelf. And we keep coming back to Vermont Compost, both for overall quality and batch-to-batch consistency. It's that consistency that keeps us coming back. There are so many variables that affect how good your seedlings are. We know Vermont compost will give our plants the best possible foundation so we can stick to worrying about all the other stuff and not the potting soil. Each fall, Vermont compost offers a pre-buy program to incentivize ordering your spring soil before the snow flies. You can receive 20% off orders placed, paid for, and shipped by October 31st. Listeners of the Growing for Market podcast will also receive a free 60-quart bag of Compost Plus container and transplant booster mix with your order. Visit vermontcompost.com GFM for more details or mention this podcast when you place your order. 
Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming Noah Poulos of Wild East Farm to the podcast. Wild East Farm is in Marion, North Carolina, about 40 minutes east of Asheville in the Blue Ridge Mountains, which looks like a beautiful spot. I'm not familiar with Marion in particular, but I did grow up in Virginia, and I worked on the Virginia Tech Research Farm in Blacksburg for a year, which is also in the Blue Ridge Mountains, maybe not quite as mountainous as Marion, but just up the ridge, geologically speaking, from where you are. Noah. So I first learned about Noah from the excellent cover story of the September Growing for Market magazine by Rebecca Kutzer-Rice titled Making the Leap to Farming Full-Time, where Rebecca profiled her own and a few other farmers' journeys from other jobs to farming full-time. We'll make that article public in the show notes so everyone can read it. Then Noah got in touch about writing some articles for the magazine, which will be coming later on this year and early in 2024, including a couple articles about perennial flowers and one assessing the first year in a no-dig vegetable system on his new farm. So after learning about Noah's background, I thought it sounded like an interesting moment to have a podcast conversation as you near the end of the first season on your own farm to talk about your background, how you got where you are, and how it's going on your new farm. So without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Noah. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat with you today. Cool. So I know when I was doing my homework that on your website, it says you've been a field biologist, forestry technician, arborist, land design consultant, and a farm manager. Sounds like you've already lived a couple lives, but presumably most of that is behind you. I can imagine you're pretty busy with your farm now. Can you tell us a bit about your background and how you got to the farm there in Marion? Absolutely. Yeah, I... Moved up from uh, central North Carolina in the Piedmont to the mountains about 10 years ago to come to school here for college. And at the time, I was pursuing ecology and field biology. I wanted to go into that as a career path and do, you know, field studies of different flora and fauna. And, you know, Asheville and, and southern Appalachia is just such an amazing place to pursue yeah, this and learn about become a naturalist and an ecologist in that way. And I pursued that degree all through college. And it was about halfway through my degree, my girlfriend at the time and now wife moved into a place about 20 minutes outside of town. We moved in together and it was a little old kind of cabin situated on about five acres right up at the end of a cove. And it was the first time that either of us had any access to, you know, space to raise animals and have a garden. And these were all things that had non-seriously been going on in the back of my head for a while. And, and suddenly we were, we had the space to kind of roll with it and kind of hit the ground running there. And we didn't know anything. We were totally green and, you know, planted a few kale plants and a few squash and got a couple laying hens and really just did trial by fire on everything. And, you know, so there's about a two year overlap there being in school and, and starting to homestead and just learn as we went. And the more time I spent studying ecology and homesteading at the same time, the more I started to realize, oh, well, this is a route to be an applied ecologist as well. I'm outside all the time. I'm learning constantly about plant physiology and, and animals and soil and all these things that were interesting me academically. And I was learning on that side of things. I was 
putting into practice in a way that was yielding something very tangible for us, you know, eggs and vegetables. And it, something kind of clicked in my head around that point where I was, I pretty much ditched the pursuit of becoming a biologist and ecologist in any kind of full-time professional way and decided I wanted to pursue farming. And so that's really where I came into it from was that the love of the natural world and just being endlessly fascinated with all the processes and seeing agriculture and, and small farming as a way for my learning journey to just never stop, right? And so, yeah, I, there was a bit of interim time there after school before starting to work on commercial farms where because of my degree and some of the experience I got, I was able to do different positions and, and work for a couple different companies doing some of the things you mentioned, arboriculture and forestry and the field biology. And that was all super fun and engaging, but it was even at that time, in my mind, steps on the path to starting my own farm one day with my wife. And it was hard, I guess, in moments to see along the way how necessary some of those things were in my journey. But, you know, essentially I stepped right into a management role at a vegetable farm without ever having been a crew member or even working on a commercial farm. So I was able to get in that position because of my experience homesteading, which at that point had been about four years of just each year kind of learning and graduating and growing in that space. And also, you know, the experience I had working with crews and those other capacities and some of the hands-on skills I gained. So it was a somewhat atypical route, but I was able to jump right into that management position, which again, threw me into a, you know, somewhat of a trial by fire position, which seems to be a way that I learned really well. Just like, okay, here you go. You're pretty much in charge of all operations and we'll just roll with it and learn as we go. And All right. Well, that, that does make sense in a way. Farming is so like a ultimate form of applied biology, right? It's like seeing how well you can apply the biology and, and produce something. Well, just to mention a piece of that, I guess I was also simultaneously becoming somewhat disillusioned with the academic route because I mentioned mm -hmm. that part about the homesteading was yielding, right? And that juxtaposition of, okay, my yield is food and community relationships and personal health versus my yield is data. Whereas in that scientific world, like data is pretty much the only thing, you know, particularly at some of the lower like field technician kind of levels, that's all there is to it. Okay. I got a nice spreadsheet of data, which is important and valuable. And it's not to knock that, but just personally, yeah, wanted my yield to be a little more tangible from the effort and time that I was putting in. So farming made a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, that makes sense. I'm always interested to hear how people sort of came to farming, just considering that the kind of farming that we do as far as direct market farming is a fraction of that, right? And so it's not like you have guidance counselors being like, oh, yeah, you might want to be an organic farmer or, or anything like that. There are really not that many of us. And so, and it's not promoted. In fact, some, I know a lot of 
people, in fact, some of my friends who are farmers, I know their parents specifically discouraged them from following a farming path, either because they thought it would be not profitable or just the work was too hard or just, I think a lot of people just don't even understand. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, you know, I did not grow up on a farm. Even with trips to my grandparents' farm, I remember thinking like, what the heck do farmers do all day long? There's so little exposure to the actual nitty gritty of the profession anymore. I'm always interested how people came to farming. So if I'm not wrong, it sounds like you went from more homesteading and it sounds like it just kept building on itself. And it, did I read on your website that up until acquiring this farm property, you were already running a CSA off of your homestead, but presumably this farm is like a much bigger canvas for you to, to take it to the next level? Yeah, we, we did a little CSA out of the homestead garden, which went really well. And it was mostly just folks we already knew that were supporting us. And that was simultaneously while I was managing that commercial veggie farm. And, you know, a big piece of homesteading for several years together with my wife was, you know, going into business with a spouse or a loved one or anyone you're close with has its own unique set of challenges. And we were able in those years homesteading to really work out a lot of the kinks in a very low stakes setting and, you know, figuring out what our different strengths were and what interested us in particular as individuals and the frustrations that come up with working intimately with someone that you love. And I don't think it was really until really diving into it together this year that it sunk in how important that step in our mutual process was of, you know, we got here and, and a lot of those kinks were worked out. Like we could hit the ground running and be able to delegate with one another and not have some of those potential issues or challenges come up as much. So yeah, it was, it was a building process, both learning practices and, you know, gaining some of that confidence as well as the relational piece in, in running a business together. Yeah, well, that sounds like that is great practice because you're right. You know, I I've likewise farm uh, with my wife. And um, I remember thinking sometimes, you know, it's like great when it's going great. And then when it's not going well, you know, like the pests, diseases, weather are all coming at the same time. It's like all there. Like it's, you know, it's, it's a lot to deal with. So that's probably really good practice. And I think in the article you said you were talking about how that's, you know, working on somebody else's farm is a really good way to get an idea if you're going to do it, which is, is what we did. I mean, my, my wife and I, we traveled around and, you know, kind of did, well, she calls it the apprentice circuit. You know, we, we traveled around the country partially specifically because we wanted to see what it was like to grow. You know, we worked on some farms out on the West Coast, which is a lot different than where we are up in Maine now. And I, th- I mean, that was the best thing. So, I've got to ask, you said you got a job managing a farm without, it sounds like you had some growing experience, but without any, a lot of farm experience. I mean, was that just like being thrown into the deep end of the pool? How did that go managing a farm as your first farm job? Yeah, it was a whole mix of things. And I think mostly it was a really great experience for myself. And I was, I happened to kind of be in the right place at the right time with that opening coming up where it was and the circumstances of that farm and and also just the the farm owner who his life circumstances put him in a position where he wasn't able to really be on the farm that much. So he was there, you know, it'd be two weeks on, three weeks off or 
something like that. So it was me there managing things alone quite a bit from the start. And he was just the personality type or whatever it might be that was able to trust me a lot. And I guess take on that relatively high risk situation of bringing on someone that he didn't know and just trusting my aptitude and learning capacity to pick it up quick. But also he was okay with me making mistakes that he wouldn't have made right after he'd been running his farm for and and been farming for a long time. And yeah, I, it may not be for everyone, but I learned really well in that setting where you just have to pick it up, right? It's on me. And I wanted that level of responsibility and that challenge. And I can't really see a better way to learn. I think it benefited my personality as well, because regardless of farm experience, I had a lot of strength in like the human side of things and managing a crew and being able to delegate and lean on some of the folks who had been on the crew there for a few years. And yeah, just picked it up as I went. And thinking back to my first year versus my last year there, you know, I was pretty green to commercial vegetable farming when I came in, but also fortunate to be stepping into a farm that had pretty refined systems and that had taken the time in their establishment years to set things up in a way that it was it was fairly like lean and easy to kind of fit in and just learn everything that they were doing and then over the time I was there it grew a lot you know he he intentionally kind of scaled down production a bit for that first year that I came on and then brought it back up and and eventually we expanded production to what at the time was kind of the maximum for the that the farm had seen so we were doing it was like three acres my first year of production and then five acres my second year and then my third year up to eight acres like in crops and so being able to kind of learn each year and ramp up in that way felt like a yeah a gentle kind of learning process for me rather than jumping in of what the farm could could maximally produce and yeah I'm, I'm super grateful for that experience and i think that managing puts you in you know a very different position than being on crew because i well i had some crew members throughout the years who wanted to kind of go above and beyond and take that extra bit of responsibility a lot of folks you know they want to show up at this time and leave it this time and that's totally fine. I'm, you know, hundred percent supportive of that, but being a manager kind of gave me the sense of what it would be like to own my own farm and have a certain level of responsibility and autonomy and decision-making without having the, you know, soup, the emotional tie-ins to this is my farm, this is my baby, as well as all the financial risk and investment that is put in when you start the farm. And there's a lot of gut check moments throughout my time there where it's just like when things, like you said, you know, when it's not going perfect, those questions arise of like, oh, okay, do I really want to be doing this? Is this something I can see myself doing for decades? It's not just a, you know, phase of my life that I'm interested in this. And each time bounced back from that and was reaffirmed in, in this path. And that just gave me the internal confidence when I, when we started this farm to know like, yeah, we're, we're in it to do this. And there's a lot of benefit in my experience of having those reality checks ahead of all that investment. So, so that was critical for Well, yeah, that's, that's really smart. And I think that's a good takeaway if people are listening, you know, farming can be intense and stressful. 
when the weather's not cooperating, pests, inflation, bad weather on market days. I mean, there's so many things. It can be so gratifying when things grow well it's, and it, it can be a great lifestyle, but it's, I guess it's really like any, any small business with the pressures of the pressures and vagaries of weather and, and everything else thrown in, you know, when you put your livelihood on the, on that line. Yeah, it can be a gut check moment. And I think it, it can help a lot for people to have that experience before it's their livelihood on the line. You know, not that it's any less important than when it's somebody else's, but it, it can help them. You know, I think a lot of people, I mean, uh, certainly there are idealized parts of farming of just like being outside. I mean, one thing I was starting to get jobs where I was spending all day long in a cubicle is it as much of a reaction to that. You know, I was like, I don't want to be in a cubicle all day long. But I also don't want to lose my livelihood because the weather was was wrong. And so I think that, yeah, that's that's one thing that helped us put it in perspective was working for other people. I think that's really good. Yeah, and a piece there you mentioned about, about like, you know, being stressful, particularly when things aren't, when when everything kind of goes wrong all at once. I think that, you know, unique benefit in my experience at this farm was that the owner had a demeanor that was somewhat, you know, in a lot of ways, kind of the opposite of some of my natural inclinations where he, I guess I should say, like I tended particularly at that time and, and earlier in my twenties, like to lean towards being reactive and easily stressed out when things are out of my control, not going well. And Clem, the owner, like even in the most challenging situations just had such a cool face and a calm demeanor. And he might've been experiencing stress, but the energy he would put out was so calming. just like, you know, this is part of it and this is okay. And we're just going to like focus on what's next was a really great kind of mentorship role on that side of things for me. I think I learned as much about, or as much from him in terms of demeanor and approach as I did about growing practices. And so, you know, that's just to say, whatever farm folks are working on, like, I think that, you know, if they're working on a farm to build towards starting their own, whichever farmers, farm owners, someone's around can really shape your perspective of like, oh, this is what farming's like. And been around some folks who have gotten out of it because the farms they worked on were very stressful environments and it was very reactive and things like that. So I was really grateful for Clem, like, you know, teaching me that just this mentality of like, it rains. You can't be mad at the rain. We just got to move on. You know, we live in the South. It's hot. We got to adapt and, and not. He was really good at, at least outwardly, like not tying his emotions up in some of those things. And I think without my years there, that would have been a really steep learning curve for me when things haven't gone perfectly here to yeah, just reduce my cortisol levels, you know, whereas now I, I always think kind of like, what, how would Clem respond to this situation? And I want to kind of emanate that same calmness that he brought to those things. So yeah, that's a, that's an important lesson. I mean, farms, just like any business, you know, some, some businesses can be really frantic and stressed out. And some, some people, can take it more in stride. I mean, I, I, in a way, I feel a certain almost like connection with you because, you know, the first farm that I ever worked on full time was a similar situation to what sounds like what yours was, which is, I think is pretty unusual. I mean, I think most farmers want to be around full time. So I'll say, you know, the first farm that I worked on full time is called Licking Creek Bend Farm up in Pennsylvania, which is actually in the just 
even farther up the Appalachians. It's also in kind of in, in the mountains. It's in a, in a bend of Licking Creek. And the owner of that farm named Mike Tabor, who's a really great guy, he lived most of the time in a different location. And I'm forgetting now, you know, it's like he would come up to the farm more like a couple days every week and it had pretty green people, including myself at that time, you know, working the farm. And, and, you know, thinking back to it, he was pretty good at taking things in stride because, yeah, having a farm with three or four people who are not very experienced working on it and you're not there all the time. And it was also before the time of cell phones. So, I mean, I guess we could get a hold of him, but it wasn't like, it was like he had to be at his house, you know, like if we we're, I don't know, picking tomatoes or something, we had a question about how ripe the tomatoes need to be. It, it's not like we could just like text him or call, call him any, anywhere. You know, this was back in 2003. So I don't know, maybe some people had cell phones back then. Certainly we didn't. We, we used the landline. And so there were times when we messed stuff up and he, I think he was a cool guy because he knew that. We weren't going to get everything right, and he took it in stride when we didn't. And but it ended up being a great learning experience. I mean, that's that's actually where I met my wife. You know, we didn't know each other. We ended up we signed up for the for a year. You know, we committed to a year apprenticeship on that farm. That's how that's how we met. It was kind of like learning farming together. So that's a very, I think it takes a special kind of person to do that to not be on the farm the full time and also to entrust it to people who aren't really that experienced. But clearly, from your story and, and mine, good things can come come of it when people hang in there. Because of course, not everybody did, you know, thinking, thinking of, uh, I think his farm, I mean, his farm has been in operation for decades. I think there are a lot of people who sort of like graduated out of his apprenticeship program and have gone on to start farms. And then uh, plenty of other people who were like, okay, well, that was interesting and realized it wasn't for them. And, but luckily they, you know, it was one season of their, their lives. And I think at least the people that I was with there that didn't go on to start farms, I think they, I think they enjoyed the experience. They just decided that that wasn't, wasn't what they wanted to do full time. And Annie and I, it was what we wanted to do. And actually that's, that's when we took off for the West coast actually, cause we, you know, done one season in Pennsylvania and we were just like heard about all the, how different it was and everything going on with agriculture in, in the West coast. And so we were able to get jobs right away in California and ended up working up in Washington state too. But for us, it all started on, on that farm. And luckily Mike was understanding enough to not get too mad at us when we messed everything up. All right. Well, okay. So I want to hear about your new farm. So wild East farm from the growing for market article uh, where you were interviewed, it sounds like you were waiting for the right opportunity. Is that the correct impression. And either way, how did you find your farm that you are now? Yeah. Yeah. So Western North Carolina is a place that's been really heavily impacted by the real estate bubble and emergence that's happened in the last five years. And yeah, we, we really wanted to stick around this area. We had spent a long time building community and making friends and just you know, falling really in love with the landscape here. And while we could have moved away and perhaps purchased a farm somewhere that land was more accessible and farmland and finding housing and these things was readily available for us, we really didn't want to leave Western North Carolina. And, you know, the more we learned and the more, you know, we were on this path and the more we aggressively saved our money, we felt more and more like, yeah, like the more money we saved, the further out of reach property was becoming. And 
around, I guess, 2021, late 2021, it dawned on us, like, we either, if we want to purchase a farm, we have to leave Western North Carolina. That's just the way it was. And particularly the things we wanted to do, because we had a clear picture of wanting to do several enterprises and do some perennial based systems. And while we could have perhaps bought a place and started a market garden, that wasn't really our goal or our context. So yeah, it was just a realization we had. And at that point, I guess, early 2022, for the first time, we opened our minds to the the option of leasing and seeing where that could take us because previously that was off our radars. And yeah, just had always been looking for properties and regularly checking one resource in particular we have here in North Carolina that several other states have as well. But in North Carolina, it's through the extension state extension system. And they have a website called FarmLink. And theirs is really well used and, and pretty robust and really well put together. And so I've been looking at it for years and seeking you know, looking what was there. And right around the time, or me, I guess, spring 2022, that we had set our sights towards, okay, maybe we'll lease a farm. This property showed up on FarmLink. And the way that website navigates is there's a, essentially like an interactive map. So we can just scroll around the map and see where the different pins are geographically. And so we always had a radius kind of around Asheville. And this place popped up on there. And the description of the property in terms of the existing infrastructure and the acreage and there's a house on site, all these things on that side were ideal. And then the way that the landowner had written the, I guess, blurb about the property seemed really aligned too. It was clear from the get-go he wanted folks who wanted to farm seriously, wanted to be here for a long time. There's talk even in that about potentially like a long, longer term lease being possible. And that once we got into those conversations with him, we learned that he bought this property just several months prior to us discovering it there with the sole intention of leasing it to farmers. So he had no intention of developing it or moving here as a vacation place or having a hobby farm or anything like that. He bought it so that he could make it accessible to farmers at a reasonable lease rate. And yeah, it's it's a it's a unique situation and finding someone who seems to understand those like what incentivizes a farmer and and particularly us like long-term tenure and that security and the trust to operate things autonomously and kind of design our systems without whatever vision he might have of what a farm should look like without any experience himself. Because I've heard of plenty of lease opportunities with a non-present landowner not working out because different folks may have different perspectives on, oh, like, you know, I think it should be this way, but that might not meet the reality of what the farmers need or want. And I've encountered and heard of some some unfortunate situations emerging from that mentality. But yeah, it was really clear from the first conversation that this landowner had a lot of humility and respect towards farmers of, I don't know anything about farming. I want farmers here who are going to do a good job. I mean, he interviewed us pretty extensively to learn about our plans. And yeah, we really synced up really well from the get-go. 
That's amazing. That's I mean, it sounds like he's a farm guardian angel or something like I mean, I've I've never heard of that of somebody buying a property specifically to lease it out to farmers. I wish more people would do that. I mean, that's because, of course, I mean, that's one of the big barriers to people who have even the, the you know, the know how to start a farm is access to land. So, I mean, that's amazing. Can you can you tell us a little bit about your your lease? Just because I'm just curious, what is the agreement that you've you've come to with him look like? Yeah. So we we decided to start for this initial period while we're building this relationship and and learning the land and all these things. We're in a six-year lease to start. So through the end of 2028 is what we're currently agreed to. And it's written into the language of the lease that there is the mutual intention barring unforeseen circumstances, you know, relational difficulties, these types of things that neither of us expect to happen that at the end of that six-year lease, if it's agreeable to both parties, that it would extend into a lifelong lease. So um, there's been conversations about that being written in to, you know, the property at that point going into a trust and then written into the bylaws of that trust, certain protections, like if he passes away, his children don't have the authority to kick us off or, you know, whoever might be, uh, power of attorney at that time, they don't have that autonomy. So he he's interested in like legally protecting, I guess, the legacy of his plan here beyond his lifetime, because he's several decades older than us and in all likelihood, you know, will outlive him. And if we do plan to be here for the rest of our lives, there'll become a certain date where we're interacting and interfacing with landowners that aren't him. So yeah, that's, that's where we are now. And, and for the next six years, we're just in this period of, in a lot of ways, planning for the long term, but also being aware that things don't necessarily always work out. I mean, even if we bought a place and planned to be here for the long term, sometimes things change. So we have an openness to whatever our path might take us on, but both of us are moving forward in, a, in, in terms of our actions and decisions as though we're going to be here for the rest of our lives. And that feels really good to be coming from him as well as us. Yeah. Something, I guess, big would have to change in our value system or our goals in life or whatever for our desire to be here for the long haul to change. So, yeah, it feels good. Yeah, right. I mean, a farm is is not the kind of thing, you know, people aren't flipping farms, you know, it's like, it's not the kind of thing that you, you go into expecting to be there for a couple of years, the way, the way some people flip houses, you know what I mean? And in fact, you know, our first, where we started our farm initially, we lost the use of that land and, and we were devastated at first because we were like, we just fertilized all this land and, you know, put a lot of labor and money, you know, in the form of the fertilizer and soil amendments and things like that, thinking that we'd be there for a long time. And then, then we lost the use of that land. So and it ended up being fine. But at the time, you know, we, we thought we were in it for a long haul and then our situation changed. It was very disappointing at the time, but yeah, it's not, it's not like houses where people are, you know, buying them, fixing them up and selling them a, a couple of years later. I mean, farming tends to be for the long haul, especially, especially with all the stuff that you're doing. So, it's because it sounds like you've planted a lot of perennials there. In fact, that's, you know, the as far as the articles that you're working on for Growing for Market magazine, I'm 
really interested in the the perennial flowers just because well for one thing you know some a lot of floral crops are only you know some of the some of the flowers that you might have are only available as perennials plus i i we've sensed a lot of interest from from growing for market readers in perennials just because they realized that of course they take maintenance but it's great to have a crop that you know, if you can get it established and have a plan for keeping it weed free, that you don't have to go through the whole process of replanting every year, and you know can, can harvest off of for for multiple years. But I may be getting ahead of myself with the crops. Tell us about the farm. So it's it's a is it forty four acres? I saw the picture. It looks beautiful. But tell us about the what, what drew you to the property in the first place. Yeah, it's it is forty four acres. So yeah, we're we're in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, so on the eastern side of the Continental Divide. And we were living, you know, just 30 miles west for a long time on on the other side. So down here, we're in McDowell County, North Carolina. There's a lot more flat land in general. You know, it's not just the biggest river valleys that have a, a lot of nice flat land. And this property also has a nice mosaic of rolling land and wooded land and an open pasture. And so that was one of our objectives in our land search was a mixed landscape that there would be forest and there would be flat and there would be, you know, some, some hilly space. And so in in terms of the lay of the landscape, it definitely checked all those boxes. And I mean, yeah, it's in a lot of ways, it's what drew us to the farm. I mean, it's, it was in a lot of ways, it was a turnkey operation you know, obviously there's a lot of infrastructure and development to do over the years as we build the business, but in terms of getting started, infrastructure and and water lines and electricity, a lot of those were already taken care of by the previous owner. So that allowed us to kind of hit the ground running and focus a lot of our attention this first year on establishing the production systems, which was another one of our goals. Like we, again, we there are opportunities where we could have had access to land earlier, but for what we wanted to do, we just didn't want to spend a couple years building up the baselines to be able to get started. And and yeah, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with taking a raw piece of land and, and turning it into a production farm, but that just wasn't what we were looking for. So yeah, it's a piece of work to do all that. Yeah. So we're really fortunate in that way that we could get started off the bat and. Yeah, we, we knew we wanted to do several different enterprises to get started and integrate the perennials. And yeah, from the jump, just looking at maps and visiting the property, it became really clear that some of our, I guess, most, our biggest visions of what we had pictured could look like were possible here at the on this farm property. So when we showed up for the first time with to visit, we came with you know a pretty robust checklist of about seventy-five or so essentially non-negotiable characteristics of a farm that we wanted. You know, varying in how consequential those things were, but it literally on going down through it, it checked every single box. So that's really what settled it for us when we came here the first time. We we're like, okay, this is an opportunity to take really seriously. Yeah. Wow, seventy-five non-negotiables. That's you uh, definitely put some thought into this. Can you tell us what some of your non-negotiables were? Yeah, I think some of the things I mentioned, like existing infrastructure, at least a decent 
water source, ideally a well, a certain radius proximity to a main center. So, you know, we wanted to be rural, but we didn't want to be so rural that it was going to be hours and hours and hours a week just driving to a place where we could sell the food. Things like that, you know, certain level of, of privacy, but also accessibility there. And so, yeah, those are some some of the examples. Having some of the acreage in, in forestry and certain amount of like workable pasture land. It's not, you know, in, in Western North Carolina, there's a lot of farms where it's just super steep, the whole farm. And so those are some of the non-negotiables that I can remember off the bat. Well, tell us about your first year. Okay. So this is your first season th- there, right? Yeah. So we, we moved on to the farm at the end of November of last year in 2022. And had a clear plan of how we wanted things to get started. We have somewhat of a successional plan for not only the landscape, but also how the business is going to look. So we're, we're in this kind of first five to 10 year period of establishing the farm business and the landscape. So what that looks like for us is in terms of enterprises, we decided to invest in and, and really go into you know, low capital startup, quick turnaround enterprises. So our main three things we're doing right now are pastured poultry. We're raising pigs in some of the, some of the forest land here, and we have a small market garden that we're growing. And so, you know, those three enterprises all fit that criteria, especially given some of the infrastructure we had in place to be able to just influx with our own cash and savings to get them started and be able to reinvest the money that we make off of it in the first year. Again, talking about like risk and stress and some of the challenges I saw in my experience that, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with taking on a lot of debt, but farming's risky enough. And that was something we wanted to avoid as much as possible. So choosing these enterprises where we could pay for the investment costs with money we'd saved and and have that quick turnaround. On the broilers, it's it's eight weeks from arrival to sale. As you know, a lot of the listeners know in a market garden setting, there's however you want to structure your market garden, you can have crops turning around, you know, in a month from transplanting to harvest. And that's that's we've been really happy with those decisions getting started. We also chose to do mixed enterprises because I saw one of the challenges of getting started is finding different outlets to sell. You know, a lot of folks I've talked to, it's the reflecting back on their early years or some folks I know who started and got out of it. Something I hear often is, oh, growing the food wasn't the hard part. It was selling it. And Asheville in some ways is, is it's a great place to be a small farmer because there's a robust local food scene. But with that, there's also a really high density of small direct-to-consumer farms in the area. So getting a foothold in different markets can be challenging. So by having different enterprises, we've been able to get into different sales outlets with each of those enterprises. So we have our chicken being sold a little bit wholesale, but primarily at farmer's markets. Whereas if we were just doing vegetables, we would not have been able to get in into some of the premier farmers markets we're in. If we were just doing pork, similar story, we're finding different wholesale accounts for the pork. So by having this diversity of products, 
we're building kind of this diversity of relationships for the long haul that wouldn't have necessarily been possible getting started with just one. We've been really happy with that. And and for example, like with the farmers markets, because we're in a couple of these markets with the chicken and, you know, we're good vendors, we show up every week, we have regular customers. We're now going to be able to, now that we have our foot in the door there, we're going to be able to start bringing some of the market garden produce as well. And, and conversely with some of our wholesale accounts that have just been buying vegetables, they've started to become interested in some of the meat products. So I'm really interested and, and passionate about that. Some of the benefits of, of getting started with multiple enterprises and, you know, we've, we've scaled everything this year to like, number one, be manageable for my wife and I, because we don't have a crew. We don't have any really much help this year. And yeah, number two, to be able to, I guess, pay really close attention to every, like a lot of the details of each of those enterprises so that we can decide where it makes sense to scale and, and what, I guess, makes sense to continue to pursue and not pursue. And with all that, we're not, I guess, emotionally attached to any one of the enterprises being part of the farm for the long haul. Like right now, they all make sense economically and, and ecologically and, and with the social aspect. But the second that we're, that it doesn't make sense to do broilers anymore, we, we're willing to drop that and scale something up to fill its place. So I think it offers a lot of flexibility in, in longer term decision making in that way as well. Yeah. Well, that's, that's good advice right there. Cause I think a lot, you know, a lot of people get into farming because they're, they really like a certain enterprise or you know, like a certain crop or something like that. But I think to stay in business, Farmers do have to be clear-eyed and evaluate whether those things are actually making them money or just costing them time. So that's a good perspective to have. So to loop back on the markets, it sounds, am I reading this right? Some of your markets, they're starting to let you bring vegetables because you you really, they were more interested in their chicken, but now you've kind of like proven yourselves as good vendors. They're, they're now letting you bring the ve- the other stuff too. Yeah, and it's that's just like a moment of putting yourself in a position where opportunity, I guess, is more apparent. So, you know, one of the markets, one of the vegetable producers is is kind of getting out of his lease situation and, and going a different direction. And so they're going to be down a vegetable vendor. And whereas before we may have just been one applicant in a pool of people vying for that spot, you know, it's easy the market manager to say, oh, we, we trust Wild East. Like they bring a great product. Customers are happy. Let's let them bring, you know, lettuce and arugula and these things as well. You know, not to say you couldn't get into the market otherwise, but it's just having our foot in the door and, and building these relationships with these different outlets, I think just kind of has given us a leg up versus continually cold calling throughout the years. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's really smart. That's good advice for anybody looking to get into a farmer's market anywhere because, you know, the number of farmer's markets has gone up a lot over, say, the last 20 years. Doesn't mean they're, they're not still saturated. I know we're pretty rural here, but there was still competition most of the time to get into the farmer's market we were doing. So, I mean, that's great advice, really, to anybody is look at what is not being brought to the farmer's market in you know, if you can, if you can produce that, it's, it's a good way to, to get your foot in the door. All right. So you got the vegetables, you got the broilers, you got the pigs, and it sounds like you've, you've done a lot of perennial plantings too. Is that right? 
Yeah, yeah. So this past spring, we we made a big push to essentially design and lay out the foundational, I guess, backbone of how the farm is going to look for for the long haul and and hopefully the rest of our lives and ideally beyond that. And so we laid out in the primarily in in the flat pastures where we're running our different animal enterprises, a mix of perennial fruit and nut trees, as well as some native overstory trees to grow in, in the long term. And we set it all out in a design that, you know, takes in a lot of consideration, solar orientation and our plant selection had, had a lot to do with climate and where we are, soils and all these things, but laid out in a regular pattern standardized across the farm to accommodate, you know, number one, portable field infrastructure for the animals, as well as, yeah, ease of movement of the animals across the farm. So by having broilers and turkeys, and we have a small flock of sheep, and we want to expand the ruminants down there amongst the trees, we're able to easily move them around the farm and and exclude them from the tree plantings while the trees are establishing. So with the advent of all this different portable electric netting technology that we have now, we're able to get the trees establishing in the pastures amongst the animals as they're growing and are excited to see how that, you know, evolves over time. All right. That, yeah, that was going to be one of my questions because I know animals, ruminants, even sheep, which I know are ruminants, but I'm thinking like cows can be brutal and sheep probably in their own way on, you know, saplings. So what does this look like? You mean, are you, are you moving chicken turkey tractors through the aisles of and then like grazing the sheep and just using an electronet or something like that to keep them in or what what does this what does this plan look like in, in practice yeah yeah essentially so this year the sheep are grazing ahead of the broilers and we have like salatin style pens that we pull across the pasture which are just you know simple essentially boxes that move quite easily and the sheep you know they're grazing down and growing and and keeping the grass low enough so that we can easily pull the chicken tractors behind them. Tr- each lane of trees is equally spaced 40 feet apart, which is a standard width that allows us to run three of those chicken tractors per lane width-wise and is a really nice dimension to work with with the electronetting. And, you know, could easily be retrofitted for single line for cows or whatever the case may be. It's been, yeah, the animals are moving gracefully across the pastures and and grazing down the grass between the trees. And it's been fun to watch it go from, you know, theory and design into practice and learn some of those, you know, the things that the, the design doesn't show you along the way. And so the thinking is over time, I mentioned our five year plan being these quick turnaround, low investment cost type of enterprises that as the trees in the next five to 10 years start to come into their own and start bearing fruit and that we each year intensifying the diversity within those plantings of, you know, you mentioned flowers, other perennials like different shrubs and cane fruit and things like that, that those are starting to come into their own and that we can begin to transition to more of a a UPIC perennial type operation. And right now, the vision may seem a little idealistic, but essentially like our fruit and nut plantings, it's not standard orchard style plantings where there's a block of apples, a block of 
pears, block of, you know, whatever it might be. It's all interplanted within each tree lane on a set pattern. So apple next to a pear, next to a mulberry, next to a pawpaw throughout. And the vision in terms of the you pick and and bringing people onto the farm is to create a space where it almost mimics a foraging experience, right? There's different things ripe at different times of year, and it's a little more random than straight rows of one type of fruit tree. And yeah, essentially, our hope is to just turn this farm into the coolest place to forage in Western North Carolina. And I think that by that time in being established in the community as Wild East Farm, that folks will be excited to come out here and have that experience. And we're rural enough that I think it would have been a little green to try to go you pick immediately. But the thing is that as we build up a customer base, and honestly, as more and more people continue to move to this area, in particular, some of the areas around Asheville that in that time span, transitioning to perennial you pick as the one of the primary things we're doing is more and more feasible. And are the are the flowers going to be part of the U pick, or is that you? Is that something you're going to arrange and sell as bouquets or farmer bunches or something like that? Yes, those details are down the road, I suppose. You you've probably got a couple of years to figure it out with the perennials. Yeah, and that's that's a kind of liberating feeling. It's like once the trees are established and looking good, and you know we're scouting and making sure that nothing's going wrong. That it is kind of a okay, set it and forget it annual maintenance and then yeah have time to work out the details of exactly what that'll look like in terms of you know sales and market and everything yeah the UPIC flower model is super interesting to me because i every time i've gone to a place that has UPIC flowers it seems like there's potential for it to be very lucrative you know i see people selling okay you fill this solo cup it's 20 dollars to fill a solo cup you go pick the flowers yourself or $50 to fill a five-gallon bucket, you go do the work and I'll just kind of be in the background making sure the flowers are happy. Because I know, yeah, I commend the work of the, the flower farmers I know who show up at market with bouquets because it's a lot of work. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it is a lot of work. It, I also know that I think of the, the pick flower operations that I've heard definitely have limits uh, or like on the big, like huge, how many of the big focal flowers you can take and, and stuff like that. So... But I mean, it's it's a great idea, and I mean, just just as just a, along the lines of how you pick fruit or veg, is takes a lot of the labor out of it for the farmer. It makes a lot of sense. Do you imagine this same kind of distribution across your farm into the future? I mean, I know you said you're willing to be flexible as far as you know. You got the market garden, you got the animals, and then you got the perennials. Part of the reason I ask is because we had some friends who wanted to start an orchard. But they realize they're like, okay, well, an orchard, we're not going to make any money off of an orchard for what a decade, right? And so they, they actually started a market garden. You know, they, they got a property that had areas that were suitable for orchard and for a market garden. And so they started a market garden and planted their trees with the whole idea being to phase out the market garden once the, once the trees took over. And so in my mind, they started a market garden in order to start an orchard. So I'm just curious, is that where you're going with this? Or in your idea, are you still doing the market garden, the animals and the perennials, say, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the line? Yeah, I think, like you said, there's flexibility to those decisions. In terms of my day-to-day transitioning over the years, I would like to, we're, we're striving, my wife and I, to be able to spend more and more time on the, the longer-term visions of the perennials 
as well as when these systems come into maturity, having a big educational component to what we're doing. And after that X amount of years of kind of walking the walk and, you know, hopefully that time proving some of these concepts to be viable in that time span to not necessarily ditch the current enterprises, but hopefully be able to find people and bring folks on who are interested in farming and maybe want a certain level of autonomy, but don't necessarily want to or have the means to like start their own farm from scratch, but say, hey, we've got an eight-year-old market garden here. It's, you know, it's really established. We've got customers. We've got, you know, it's, things are dialed in at that point pretty well, I, I'd imagine. And that hopefully the right person could come on if they're really excited about market gardening, then it's, we say, okay, like the market garden's yours. You get to just totally operate it. You'll still run under Wild East Farm and kind of operate in, I don't exactly know what to call the model, but almost like an umbrella model where things would still be sold through Wild East, but that should the right people who are gung-ho and wanting to take things on emerge and want to come here, that it wouldn't be as straightforward as, okay, like you're working on the crew of Wild East, like you could have the opportunity to start to really have full autonomy over the gardens or have full autonomy over the pastured poultry or whatever it might be at that time in, in somewhat of a hope to address on to some extent that land access piece where it's like, okay, like it's not necessarily standard lease. It's not owning the property, but you get to have all of the fun of the day to day and, and the challenges as well of learning and all that of, of fully running this enterprise because we have the infrastructure and we've invested and yeah, like you can take it on and learn with us and, and have that be kind of your baby. That's something I envision and dream about and we'll see how that all rolls out. But yeah, to answer your question, I think in like the 10 year time span, we don't see ourselves on the day to day harvesting carrots and moving broiler pens and doing all that 100% of the time. But not to say that we don't necessarily want those things to be part of the farm. And so that's, again, where like the circumstance, circumstance and context is going to continue to dictate exactly what we're doing in terms of details. And yeah, I guess I, I have some faith that in that time frame, people will, that that need will be there and that folks will be excited about farming in that model. And, you know, if it ends up being like a springboard for folks who like spend a couple seasons here and then the confidence to start their own thing, that's great. But we'd love to have folks here for a longer time, too. Yeah. Well, I can see that being a good opportunity, almost like a halfway opportunity for someone be, who's got some experience, but either can't find the land or isn't ready to start their own farm, you know, to take on something with some autonomy uh, on your place, for example. Do you foresee hiring people to help you there? Or do you see more like what you already talked about as far as giving, you know, almost like having a, a manager for a different uh, or giving someone autonomy over diff the different enterprises. Yeah. So, you know, this year I said we scaled things to fit our capacity. I think we more or less have like maxed that out this year in terms of like what still feels good. And so, yeah, next year our hope is our plan is to essentially double the scale of production in all of the current enterprises and we're bringing on 
a couple folks next year. And so that's that's the plan is to have kind of double the workforce and, and double the scale. And I don't think we'll like grow at that pace year by year, but I think for the for the economics of it to work longer term, you know, we have to scale up a bit and we can't really do all these things just ourselves. And so we're excited about having folks out and working on the farm starting next year. Yeah, I think it'll be a a game changer. And like, I'm, you know, I guess maybe I kind of learned this partially from Clem and his experience with me, but I have no uh, holdups about giving folks full autonomy over certain things or like maybe not full autonomy, but a, a large amount of autonomy over something that they might be particularly excited about doing that with. Like I, I'm excited about that prospect. And, you know, I think a lot of the folks I've worked with that are in those farm manager roles are motivated and inspired by a certain level of autonomy and decision-making and not being wanting to be told like, okay, like here's the only way it's done. Here's how we do it at Wild East. But being open to saying like, Hey, you might, and probably have better ideas than I do. Like let's roll with those because, you know, fresh eyes are good. And yeah, I think just that fresh energy coming in whenever possible can just always help the farm be better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's one of the things that keeps farming interesting for myself and probably a lot of people is that there's as many ways to farm as there are farmers. And so, you know, we used to say that it was it was time to quit apprenticing and go start your own farm when you start second guessing the farmer all the time and, you know, thinking like, ah, no, like I wouldn't do it that way. Like, okay, well, time to time to go start your own farm. So that that's really cool. And also it it does take some forbearance. I don't know if that's the right word to to give people some autonomy, especially since it's, you know, if if things do get messed up, it can be financial problem too. So I I know because you're writing an article for us that you're sounds like you're using a no-till or no-dig system. I mean, it's interesting. You, I think you, when you you pitched the article to us, it was about, you used the term no-dig, which it seems like, seems like they use that in in England a lot. And here, you know, they no-till, but I just wanted to ask, can you tell us what your, or assuming that's what you're doing, but just tell us a bit about your market garden, how you're managing that and your no-dig or no-till system? If, if I've got that right, that's the same thing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting semantic thing, but yeah. So we we decided to, I guess I'll back up. So the vegetable farm I was managing was all like tractor based, you know, minimizing tillage as much as possible and doing what I thought was a, a good job of that. But it wasn't exactly the route I was interested in pursuing for what I wanted my day to day to look like. So. We had been experimenting on the homestead with the, like deep compost no-till system, utilizing deep compost as not only the growing medium, but a good uh, weed barrier and keeping labor low and, and water retention high and, and just that, you know, introducing a massive uh, input of organic matter from the start. And so we, we had had success on the home scale and wanted to kind of roll with that and continue to learn as we scaled it up. There's not a ton of like living examples immediately near me to, to have seen a lot of that firsthand. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a really fun and engaging learning experience. And, and particularly like you mentioned that in England, they call it no dig and, and some of the opportunities to learn about these practices are there. Like, 
a lot of the no-till and no-dig systems that you can learn about through different uh, media resources are very well-established, like years in the making of, of getting the soil ecosystem where it needs to be for that system to be optimal. And so it's been super inspiring and super humbling the first year, just kind of turning horse pasture into this system and seeing what exactly it looks like in practice in our climate and in our context here at the farm. So it's it's inspiring in the sense that, wow, in just a few months from this was horse pasture, we're, you know, cutting greens in the spring and selling, bringing them to market, just like very quick, no machinery needed, just, you know, all hand labor and hand tools and challenging in the sense that like certain things like addressing drainage issues or rate of decomposition is much greater in North Carolina than it is in England, I imagine at least, because, you know, you put down five inches of compost in in our hot, wet Southern summer, like it burns up pretty quick. So learning some of those practical pieces and finding that balance. And ultimately, I'm really inspired in terms of vegetable growing by hand scale production and just finding ways like growing that part of the business by intensifying rather than getting bigger and just getting more and more dialed in and better and better at how many crops can we do in a season and how can we get the best looking stuff growing out of here and and you know having the patience to yeah we can't plow and like rip a subsoiler through and and dig drainage tiles like it's already built and everything so just playing the long game doing things like broad forking and cover cropping to address some of the problem areas we've seen but it's been really inspiring the first year how much we've been able to produce out of what was like fairly degraded super just a bunch of perennial rhizomaceous grasses and now it's just like a pretty weed free space that that's pretty productive for year 1 so yeah we've been we've been really happy well that's great so it sounds like you've been able to smother that pretty well because of course the rhizominous grasses can be a huge they can be very difficult to deal with, but you must just have been able to smother them enough to get something to plant into and then to, to go away in the meantime. Yeah. And I think it, it's taken like diligent upkeep with whenever some of those are popping up through the compost, cause they do. And there's, there's even non rhizome grasses that, that have popped up, but like the most amazing thing is that it's year one and there hasn't been to date a single annual weed pop up in the garden. And that's because like, you know, we didn't open up a seed bank. We didn't, it's, stuff will fly in and, and, you know, we'll have to address that over the years, but it's all just been little spots here. Okay. This grass, I'm going to pull it, this little clump, I'm going to pull it some other perennial forbs, but it feels like just in keeping up with that through the spring and summer, just now we've kind of hit a tipping point at this point in the growing season where like, I'll go out to weed and there's just not really much to do. And so that's part of the, I guess, the disparity between seeing a super established one where, okay, they already kind of did that process five, whatever, 10, 20 years ago versus being in it on year one. It's not weed free and it'll never be weed free, but I guess learning hands on the ways that we can manage that as well as, I guess, the viability year one, as long as we're willing to keep up. Like if I had just 
laid the compost, planted it out and like walked away and I'm, I'm never going to weed. It would be a mess, right? But we've been able to keep up with it. Yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, yeah, if, if you do it right, I think that that method of, you know, deep compost can smother out a lot of stuff. So it sounds like, sounds like you did it right. Cause yeah, and you, nobody's ever going to be completely weed free. But when I think about, we've done both approaches uh, as far as tilling and, and not tilling in, especially if you don't have good soil to start with, I think it can be easier to make your own soil, put the, put a bunch of compost down and, and plant into that. Cause I feel like we, yeah, I mean, we, we had a similar thing when we, came to the farm that we are now you know we are basically growing on pretty exhausted you know not well taken care of i guess it was hay and you know had corn occasionally and we really struggled with tilling it up and then the soil be still being in bad shape and and then the weeds also come but we also didn't we didn't really have that deep compost method back when we started here where we are so for veg, are you growing a little bit of everything? Are there certain crops that you that you rely on heavily? Yeah, this this year's been a lot of experimenting and kind of matching how it fits with the rest of the farm, both in terms of just the calendar year as well as I've mentioned the different sales outlets. And essentially, we've we've decided. So yeah, this year we we grew kind of a lot of everything, and it was a small enough space we were like tucking in personal garden stuff into the market garden. Like we like to grow paste tomatoes for sauce. We didn't sell any of those, but there was this mix and we were growing summer stuff and, you know, pretty good variety. And I was doing a lot of experimenting with different interplantings and crop rotations and just not with any necessarily like hopes of even selling anything off of a bed, but just kind of testing what, you know, it's kind of a cool term. I like like relay cropping where it's a bed is never not seeded or planted to something. So for example, like one bed this year that was kind of the most experimental bed we did, it was like arugula in the spring. And then once the arugula came out after a few cuttings, I planted okra just in a single row down the middle with basil on either side of it. And so those kept up with each other pretty nice. Like the the okra came, once the okra sprouted, I seeded basil. And so it was like a strip of okra with basil grown on either side. And then once the okra, I like cut the okra out and then the basil like really hit its stride. And then recently we cut out all the basil and just like in the crop residue and like directly kind of into where the roots of that were, we planted fall collards. So it was this just like boom, 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 boom. And never even took a tilther or anything to that bed, just like... And just seeing what, I don't know, that stuff's fun and interesting. And I think that's part of intensifying is experimenting with that, that type of thing. But our, the direction we're going to be going next year and hopefully for the next few years is to actually try to take summer pretty much off from the vegetable production. Like because we're in a nice, warm, pretty mild wintered climate, we have a lot of confidence we can really extend the growing season pretty well on either side and, and have some good winter production as well. And really focus in on some core crops, mostly greens and root crops. And try to just like take that July and August push out of it. So, you know, whenever the last of the radishes and kales and lettuce is coming out in June, we'll just like 
next year, we're just going to cover crop or tarp those beds. And then once like mid-August rolls around, we'll start planting out fall brassicas and seeding root crops again and just skip tomatoes and summer squash and all, all of the, you know, the fun, delicious summer stuff, but grow enough of that for us, but take some of that pressure off of the summer. Cause I mean, I've been doing commercial veggies for enough years that it's pretty reliable that like July and August is the time of year that I don't like doing it, <laughs> you know, particularly in the heat down here. And it's just, you're just getting hammered with these sane rain events and like, yeah, a lot more pressure in those months, like a lot more work with a lot less guarantee that it's going to go well. So we're going to experiment with that and and try to just bring veg to different markets between essentially like September and May and September and June. And yeah, see how that goes. And if and again, that's part of having like for us mixed enterprises is that doesn't pose a cash flow issue for us because we can lean on the sales of, of broilers during those months. So again, a lot of experimenting and learning, but I have pretty high hopes that we can kind of go in that direction and, you know, leave plenty of, continually plenty of space in the different markets for people who are excited about doing summer veggies to be the ones doing that. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the things that you said in the article, the Growing for Market article that you were interviewed for is that, you know, risk is spread out across the enterprises. And that makes a lot of sense. Also, because I imagine, I mean, there's probably tons of people doing all those, you know, tomatoes, all the hot weather crops. I mean, I I imagine that, that the markets are probably pretty saturated with all that stuff. Big time. Yeah. I was gonna say like a lot part of that strategy is a lot of the like the most established, you know, they've been doing it for 20 some year, small organic veggie farms, like that's their bread and butter. They kind of stopped planting stuff in, in August. And then, you know, they're, they're off of markets from November through May, you know, cause they just crank hard enough in the summer that they can afford to take that off. So again, like seeing where we might be needed, where we can fit in part of that. Yeah. Like definitely way more saturated. What is the winter market like down there? I mean, do you think, are there enough people doing winter production that there's going to be a fair amount of production or competition uh, during the winter too? Or are you going to have it a little bit more to yourself if you're rolling up with, with greens and the things that you can, you can do in the winter to, I assume your farmer's markets are year round down there. Yeah. The, the two that we're in are year round, not all the ones in Asheville are, but yeah, like there's, there's a couple folks doing some like more shoulder growing and winter growing, but far less. And, you know, it's our experience that those, those vendors who show up with their pile of greens and root crops in December and January, like they're literally sold out in 15, 20 minutes because people are just, people are craving fresh local food and, and yeah, there's way less people doing it. And, you know, naturally because it is like plants don't grow as well, there's less of a volume of it. So there's definitely a big opportunity here. And I imagine in a lot of places to fill that niche of, of focusing on the off seasons. Yeah. I mean, it sounds pretty promising. You're definitely not the only one. I know a few farmers who really kind of almost like take the summer off and specialize in winter growing. And of course, it's I mean probably not completely off for the summer because there's always, you know, you're kind of always prepping for the next crop, but it can burn you out trying to, to grow everything all year round. Like I remember 
when we built our greenhouses up here in Maine, you know, we were like, great, now we can do year round production. But pretty quickly it set in, you know, we're going to try to be harvesting greens when it's, it is frozen solid. And, and just like everything else, you, you need a break. So I think that's really smart to maybe like pick a part of the year to not, maybe not go so hard on because of course you got you got the animals and all those perennials and things, but that'll give you more time to tend to all those things if you're not trying to grow all the same things that everybody else is, is growing in the summertime. So it, it sounds like a good good plan. We should have you all back on the podcast in five years and uh, hear about how all, all these plans went. Yeah, that'd be wild. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, yeah, that would be fun. I, I mean, I look forward to reading your articles and, you know, hopefully you'll keep us in mind beyond the, the few that we have on the editorial calendar right now. And well, and I, and I know that you had pitched one to us about animals, too, which is the the only one that we we turned you down on, which I think you should you should pitch that article to some magazine that does animals and stuff like that. As, you know, that's that's just one thing like us internally is that obviously we have readers and listeners who who integrate livestock into their vegetable operations but we've just chosen to be really focused as far as a growing for market magazine we really focus in on growing veg and herbs and and uh, and flowers really just because there's this whole other world of animal husbandry we've had animals various animals at at different times on, on our farm but i feel like there are magazines out there that talk about that do a really good job talking about animals and I feel like we, you know, we have at Growing for Market, we have this 32 year history now of articles and, co- you know, that put vegetable growing and things like that in context. And so if people touch on one part of, of growing a vegetable or a flower, then there's all this other information, especially now that we have all the, you know, the con, you know, a lot of the magazines are digitized from the last decade and searchable articles and stuff like that. That if, if say, somebody's reading an article about getting their soil right, well, we probably have, and they need more information, we probably have five other articles on on tuning your soil. Whereas, you know, like the, the livestock articles were just kind of like standalone and not really be supported. So, you know, I liked your idea about the animal article. I just don't think it's for, for growing for market. But it's it. I, it sounds like a really interesting, you know, integration that you're doing there with the, just the veg and flowers and perennials and annuals and animals and, and all that kind of stuff. I did want to ask you, is there, is there anything here in your first year that was either a lot harder that you thought would be or didn't work out or just that didn't go the, the way you thought it would? Macro scale, everything's gone really to plan and, and really well for us this year. And I think a lot of it comes down to a lot of planning. I mean, we spent years fleshing out this plan before coming here as well as the experience of like if this was my first year i'd probably say oh like the august heat was harder than i expected and it was hard but i knew what to expect you know micro you know there's little things like growing carrots in a first year node till system can be really challenging (laughs) you know more challenging than expected and for reasons that i didn't foresee so like you know, little micro stuff, but uh, it's hard to even frame those negatively because they're just learning opportunities where it's like, okay, now I, I know why that happened and I'm going to try to not do that again. But yeah, I mean, we've been really fortunate to have everything be going really smoothly for us this first year. And we, we hope to be able to carry that momentum forward and just take it a day at a time. And, and I mean, I think there's a piece too that comes down to just mentality and I, I alluded to it with what I learned from being around Clem is like 
you know, thinking back, there's probably a lot of things that I could have seen as, oh, that didn't go right, or oh, this isn't going my way, or whatever. But I feel like we've developed a really a, a good capacity to try to redirect those things to be learning opportunities and frame them positively and just like know where we are. Like we're in our first year on a farm. If every single thing went totally perfectly without a hitch, like that's an unrealistic expectation. So I was expecting things to generally feel good by this point in the year, like they are, but I, I was never expecting to not face unforeseen obstacles and things. So yeah, little stuff pops up, but in the broader framework, feeling really good. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it's testament to your planning and experience. You know, it's, a, it's definitely it sounds like you put a lot of thought with your 75 non-negotiables. I mean, it's a, you know, it sounds like you you had experience, you had a plan, and it sounds like you're I mean, I'm I'm thrilled that it sounds like you're executing on it and you know, didn't didn't have any big hiccups. I mean, I think I just like to ask that question cuz that's the kind of thing, you know, like when you're going into any experience, let alone something as big as as uh, you know, starting your own farm enterprise, there's always things that you know, we think are going to be different until they're not or you know, things turn turn out differently than the, than the way they have. So it sounds like you made a good plan in her. Sounds like it's a good plan if there weren't any huge hiccups at this point. So, well, we've been talking for quite a while and, and I, I really appreciate you taking time out of what, what must be a very busy time of year for you. So before I let you go, I did just want to ask you if there's anything else that I should have asked you about or, or anything, anything else you want to say before I let you go. Yeah, no, it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it and feel like we touched on a lot of stuff. I think talking about different articles and, and things I'm interested in writing about generally. Something that's just kind of started to fascinate me a lot over the last few years, and in particular this year, is more stuff on kind of the lifestyle piece of being a farmer. And there's a lot of literature out there about growing practices and soil health. And like you said, like whole volumes of magazines and articles in the whole animal world. And just like kind of a shockingly small amount about making it work to match like what we desire as our lifestyles to be as farmers. And I think like one of the biggest limiting factors I see in general, but in particular people early on in their farming career is like issues like burnout and stress and just like general dissatisfaction with certain elements of life, you know, like aching backs and not enough time to spend with family and these things. And it's like, I don't think that that has to be the narrative of the small farmer or the experience of the small farmer. So I don't know if it would fit in all with growing for market magazine. And it, you know, could be like specifically within a veggie kind of production context, but you know, some of these elements that fascinate me are like getting proper exercise and like, are we actually eating the food we produce or are we going to the grocery store and buying junk food and things like that? Or, you know, how do we, what are some proven ways from people been doing a long time to work with a spouse in a functional way and all these things that it's like, I guess the softer skills, it's not five steps to grow great carrots. It's like life is super complex. How do we try to design our decisions so that we feel happy and content? Because yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like I came into farming at a time where like the dominant narrative, even amongst farmers and amongst people kind of outside looking in is like, it's super hard. It's super stressful. You know, like 
just this insurmountable amount of like challenge and sacrifice. But I would like to leave this world, hopefully in many decades, with like the picture of farmers as as people like living not only in accordance with their values, but being like the picture of health, whether that's their physical health or their relationships or internally and things like that. Like I think that that's where a lot of my interest really lies in terms of writing. So that's like generally to say that, but also curious about, you know, and we can take the conversation, you know, beyond this on email and stuff, but how that could potentially fit within growing for market. Cause I know like the take the cover article for, this month, like you mentioned, it, it's about vegetable producers, but not specifically about producing vegetables or flowers, whatever it might be. Yeah. I'd love to continue, continue that conversation. And in fact, you know, either in the pages of the magazine or another podcast conversation or wh- wherever it might lead us. In fact, I mean, that's, that's one of the things that excites me about this podcast is we get to have more expansive conversations as far as like the number of words that we've spoken here today are probably more than an entire magazine. So like the magazine, we have to be very focused. And you're right, you know, work-life balance is is a really important thing. We've talked a little bit about it on the podcast about being balanced and, and trying not to get burned out because I've d- definitely, you know, came into farming with a lot of enthusiasm, got really burned out, certainly. And, you know, so it's, I f- almost feel like I'm still recovering a little bit because, you know, I was working a full-time job and working on the farm and, of course, my wife, Annie, also doing the same things. And it's not helped. But, you know, I I think part of the reason that, yeah, a lot of the conversations around farming are about how hard it is and, and how you can get burned out is, is also because it's not, it's not valued enough economically or, you know, it's not I don't think it's valued enough by the, the society. Right. So it means I think. Unfortunately, one of the things in the United States we have there's so much subsidization of food. I think people expect food to be really cheap and granted a lot of the cheap food is not good for people, but it makes it you know, it makes it seem like the food that probably a lot of our listeners are working to produce, it makes it seem really expensive in comparison to highly highly processed foods which are also are subsidized. And so that that makes it even harder I think to make a living when you're when what you're making is undervalued and what you're doing is is probably undervalued. So like that right there you've definitely hit a hit on a, a very strong subject Noah and yeah let's let's continue that conversation either in the magazine or another podcast episode or something like that because that's why I feel like for for growing for market what we want to do is help growers succeed and whether that's making making enough of a living that you can take a little time off in the winter or don't have to spend every single second of your day working or just finding the strategy to decompress and feel like, you know, like, uh, for example, you know, you may be getting exercise at work, but it may be, you know, bending over, doing the same thing a thousand times in a row, which is, of course, not not good for your body. So, yeah, finding ways to, to find some time for exercise that isn't just repetitive emotions all the time. I mean, that yeah, it's a huge subject and, and a very, very worthwhile one. So I, I hope you keep working on that, Noah, and uh, pitch us, you know, pitch us an article or two or, or another podcast conversation. Because, because yeah, of course, you know, there's like people, I think it's fair to say a lot of people get into the kind of farming that we do for lifestyle reasons. Like I didn't want to be in a cubicle all day long. People think, you know, want to be outside and are doing something that motivates them and is good for the world. And then, you know, it's very demoralizing to start doing all that stuff and then just get burned out. So yeah, very important subject. Let's keep the conversation going. Yeah. Only other thing, if you would be able, I just, this summer, you know, in the 
purpose of documenting starting things up and from kind of laying the groundwork i've started making videos and putting them on youtube so absolutely we'd love to so that reminds me okay noah you tell me where well so on that subject where can people do you want people to look you up on either anywhere social media you know tell us what your where people can find you on social media including youtube yeah, yeah. We're on primarily Instagram at Wild East Farm, YouTube as well, Wild East Farm. The Instagram under that handle is my wife's like beautiful curation of photographs and stories about the farm. You can also find my point of view at Noah the Farmer on Instagram, which is kind of just more me documenting and talking about production and what we're doing here more specifically. So those are kind of the three main channels to find us on social media. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. Yeah, we will definitely include that. Love the name Wild East Farm. I mean, it's a funny thing. Right before we moved to Maine, we were working in, in New York State. And when we were looking around Maine, it just seemed we, we, we actually thought of Maine was like the Wild East, because it seemed like there was a lot less just like regulation and things than than say New York State, and so I, I love that you actually. I mean, we never talked about like Wild East Farm, but I love I love that you made a farm name out of that. That's really great. So for a few years leading up to like we had been thinking about a farm name before we knew we were going to come here and stuff to this farm. We were up on like this rugged ridgeline hike and couldn't see any civilization for anywhere in the the view of many miles. And one of us just said like, man, like the West gets all the credit for being wild. You know, wild East is, is a thing. And I think I said that and then Lyric was like, that's the farm name. So we just rolled with it. Yeah. That's great. I love it. All right. Well, no, it's been super fun. Thanks so much for taking time out of your busy day to chat with us. Let's do it again sometime. Sounds good. I appreciate you. We'll talk soon. All right. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Growing for Market podcast. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider giving us a follow and a rating or a review. It really helps others find the podcast. For more tips and tricks from farmer to farmer, check out our magazine at growingformarket.com. Whether you're a commercial grower or just want to grow like one, subscribe to Growing for Market magazine for the nitty-gritty of growing, marketing, and the business of market farming. We publish 10 issues per year with articles written by experienced farmers on topics ranging from tools and techniques to farm business operations and marketing. If you've been listening to the Growing for Market podcast and haven't yet checked out Growing for Market magazine, we've made a change so you can try the magazine for free. We've added a free month to the beginning of all first-time subscriptions. Try out the digital or paper magazine subscription for a month, and if it's not for you, cancel within 28 days and you'll never get billed. Even the most basic subscription gets you a year of the magazine, plus 150 back issues from the last 15 years. With digital subscriptions starting at just $30 per year, head on over to growingformarket.com and subscribe today to benefit from over three decades of writing by farmers for farmers in Growing for Market magazine.